Hey there, humans. Welcome to Sinister Soup, the podcast where we explore genre fiction through the lens of literature, film, and ridiculous conversation. Today, we have Jolene Lorraine on to talk about her book, Nighthawk. Welcome, Jolene. Thank you for having me. What uh, drew you to start sort of writing? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for the listeners? Uh, Yeah. Um, Well, as far back as I can remember, I was telling stories. So even before I could write, I was telling stories and my parents or my older sister would write them down. Um, So storytelling has just always been a part of my life. Um, So I don't really know when I actually started to write stories. Nighthawk has been something that I was kind of writing for myself since I was 12 years old. So a good chunk of my life has been spent just uh, working and just um, telling stories um, about this world and about these characters. But as a serious author, um, that started probably um, after I graduated high school back in 98. So that dates me. But um, yeah, I just started uh, thinking maybe I could actually turn these into books that other people would like to uh read and so took some different courses writing fiction and novels and just went for it and um then it was about oh, seven years ago or something like that um ended up getting published and it's been quite an adventure ever since <laughs> well that's amazing and uh, the journey i think is worth it especially reading through your book is really fantastic um Thank it you. blends kind of this action-based mm-hmm. and political-based science fiction. What was the inspiration behind blending this sort of two mm-hmm. subgenres into one? Not a hundred percent sure. It just kind of all happened. Um, I mean, I just I've always loved sci-fi, loved action, fantasy, anything like that. That's just that's just always been me. Um, so it was just kind of natural to write that way. And I just basically wrote it as if I was writing for film. That's really what my passion is, is film. And so I just put it in my head. It's like, this is the movie I want to watch. And I wrote it down. The The political side, you know, I don't know. It just kind of happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not trying to just, you know, make some kind of political statement or political anything. It just kind of, I, I look at it as, okay, what's happening in this world? And um, what would it just naturally, um, what would the natural progression of action and, and the different characters and what they would be faced with if uh, the situations that they come across, you know, with a war and stuff, what would that be like and so I just kind of looked at it from a realistic perspective but hopefully still from a sci-fi another world at the same time (laughs) oh yeah absolutely and you can definitely see the sort of the movie-based action sequences in it especially that the sequence with um the first sort of combat David has when he's Mm -hmm. part of this police academy type Uh group that was so the forward (laughs) momentum on that was excellent Oh, fantastic. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I've always loved, as I said, I love action. I've studied action. I've actually even, um, I took um, like stage and stunt uh, combat type of um, performance. So I did a lot of training in that and uh, actually worked professionally as a sword fighter for a while. So yeah, I I try to bring a lot of that to the the forefront when I write. I think, uh, like you said, the it's a sci-fi world, but you also mm-hmm. wanted to make sure it had a really realistic feel. And I think that's important because every good sci-fi, uh, it doesn't matter where the world is or what kind of world it is. If it isn't like realistic, 
then it isn't relatable. Like, it has mm-hmm. to be realistic on some level. Even, like, mm-hmm. Asimov's really out there stuff is still... You can still be like, oh, this is basically Rome in space. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you how did you go about accomplishing that? Years and years of world building. <laughs> um, I just uh, before I even thought of making them in, the, in these stories about David and and um, all of the other characters, I just I was just writing little stories about them, and um, I would just kind of come up with their world. What would their world look like? Even down to um, their genealogies, so I can actually trace. Um, every single character that is ever mentioned in that, well, human character that's mentioned in any of the novels, um, I can trace their lineage back eight generations. Um, <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, um, it's kind of crazy, but yeah, that's, I guess that's how my brain works. But, um, you know, I, I was uh, designing, um, you know, what what are the stores? You know, what's just the their, um, their businesses and um, what do the wildlife look like? And um, even to, to come up with, you know, the physiology of the, the wildlife. You know, I just did tons and tons and tons of world building um, before I even started to get into actually thinking about stories um, in a novel sense and um, the series that is now out. So, and it, again, it was just, a lot of it was just for fun. It was almost a hobby and it, was, mm-hmm. <laughs> it just got more and more detailed. And so now I can go back and look at all those details and go, oh, I can pull this, I can put that into the story and stuff, so. That's awesome. And I think yeah. like that, that I think is where, where science fiction and fantasy sort of mm-hmm. genres really, really can blend a lot and where they're mm-hmm. very similar because you're describing your process is reminding me even of like Tolkien mm-hmm. reading his biography of like how the Lord of the Rings started was yes. like like you said just a hobby he was like building this world middle earth and then was like oh there's stories in here yeah yeah um, pretty much <laughs> what I'm particularly drawn to from your world is the Selahi what what kind of drove uh inspired them or brought them to your mind originally uh-huh. and especially their language and how you yeah. don't you don't tra- you don't like translate it for the reader. You kind of no. write it in their own language and then tell them what was said. I I really yeah. enjoyed that. Oh well, that's really good. Yeah, it's a uh, Kelly he and um the oh, yeah they're um not from yeah that was a part of the world building was to create the language. Um, so if I actually gave you an English to Kelly he um dictionary, you could translate everything that was written um in the book. So it is translatable. Um, but, um, yeah, it just, I, I figured, Hey, I, I need to have a language, um, for, for this world. I mean, they're not all going to be speaking English. I mean, the humans do, you know, why would anybody else that, that wouldn't make any sense. And so, um, just started playing around with what would their language be like? And I don't claim to be a, you know, a master linguist. It's pretty simplistic if you really think about it and definitely not on the level of Tolkien and his uh, elvish but no I'm pretty proud of the fact that I was able to to write a, a language that you know actually could work yeah when I, I when I actually started putting the language in and I'm going hmm how do I subtitle it and um, I actually um, that was was inspired by uh, Star Wars at that point with um, how they translate what Chewie was saying and it's usually Han you know, is, is responding to Chewie's uh, 
language and um that's how you get the the translation that's how you find out what chewy is actually saying it's just through how others respond and so i went oh okay that's that's clever and that's kind of how i went about kind of quote unquote translating what's being said yeah i really like that and like r2d2 as well that's interesting yeah r2 yeah that's another example mm-hmm. that's great i think uh it's really good that you did that because like you said not everybody speaks english on earth so no they definitely wouldn't on another planet. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, and a lot of uh, books do that where, and it's a little lazy, but it's also like somewhere where it's like, okay, I get you didn't want to spend like three years making up your own language. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know. I like yeah. when authors go that extra mile and, and write like another language for mm-hmm. the interstellar life forms out there yeah 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 the tricky part is is that um i couldn't just write not all not every scene that the kelly he would be speaking their own language is it written in their language just because as a reader that would become very cumbersome especially if they're like speaking uh, back and forth to each other in long sentences and everything and i'm going it's going to get too complicated for the reader to try to follow along with you know page after page of a different language so i tried to to balance it so there are times when you're reading a scene which they would be speaking their own language but it's actually in English that's for the sake of the reader um so it was it was kind of a tricky balance and I had to kind of pass it by my editors and stuff and go okay what is this kind of strange that now there's I mean can you in your mind say all right yeah they're speaking their own language but it's translated out completely but um it is fun when I can actually kind of throw their language in um and just kind of remind the reader that yeah they are speaking their own language and of course, mm-hmm. there's also translator. They do have translators and stuff like that that they wear. So that's kind of the uh, the way out of having to write their language completely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like the uh, it's like the Babel fish in uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Just the oh, day, uh-huh. Deus Ex Machina of language. You just mm-hmm. let a fish squirm into your ear, and you can speak every language in the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah not, yeah mine's a little bit more technical it's uh, not not a fish but uh yeah kind of like that kind of like that mm-hmm. kind of they have trans yeah i mean it's it's just part of their calm link system and stuff so yeah i mean that's not even that far off uh these no. days you know that's no. right around the corner before our phones we could just hold up our phones and and do that i mean that's not that's not long away at all yeah, yeah. And it's it's really interesting that um, because some of the stuff that, I, you know, some of these technologies that I was, you know, kind of talking about and describing and I was coming up with them like in the mid 90s and stuff. And then all of a sudden they're like everywhere. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. That's what it's like. I did not, you know, they have data pads and stuff. Well, let's just I mean, it's basically an iPad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I, when I came up with data pads and that was, that was not a real thing. So it's like, no, I'm not copying the technology that's out there now. I mean, that just kind of happened, but yeah, maybe they copied me. I don't know. <laughs> do you, I doubt it. Yeah. Do you see that as like a, this sort of like evolution in our own technology? Do you see as like a opening the door to more possibilities for future sci-fi novels or is it kind of narrowing the scope the sci-fi genre can have? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that this, 
the sci-fi genre um, necessarily has to be so futuristic um, and so out there with the technologies. Science fiction can be talking about things that are here and now um and so and exploring technologies that are in right now or just coming up i mean like uh the movie the martian you know and, and being on mars i mean that's a very likely and better thing but it's it's not like they're trying to be so futuristic that they're staying ahead of technology um and in the case of nighthawk i'm not trying to be ahead of our technology or to be super futuristic um they are on another planet they're in you know basically even another dimension to well another fold of space so to speak um their technology is different and um it was developed somewhat differently um over time because of the different species that they interact with and they're basically on the same timeline as we are so i i just go okay this is just their world and if it's more advanced or the same or less advanced you know it's just that's just their their place speaking of uh lots of different species you've uh-huh. created uh, lots of races of beings and creatures in your world you're very as you were saying in depth with your character and world mm-hmm. building uh so if you could be any one of your races that you created which one would you want to be oh my goodness um other than human um i say i don't know i i'd probably pick the Tashians. <laughs> um i mean they're i mean just their somewhat heightened senses and just their athletic abilities and stuff they're i I've always kind of seen them as kind of cat-like, so kind of cat-like, kind of elf-like, you know. So I go, that's pretty cool. I think I could, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I probably of of the different species. I think um, I think the the, the Tessians for myself. Yeah. Hmm. Was it the uh, Candonians that were yes. like horses? They are like horses. That... Yeah. 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 Those. That was a very interesting choice i really enjoyed it and like i would find myself picturing some scenes in my head and yeah you'd kind of breeze over the whole room like a movie and it's like oh there's there's just like a horse here (laughs) (laughs) it's like talking with these people Uh it was enjoyable yeah well you know it was really interesting i mean um the Candonians were one of the very first things that I created within this world. And originally, I mean, this is way back, you know, when I'm 11 years old. And um, I mean, they were literally horses. I, I just loved horses growing up. And so everything I wrote had horses in it. And um, so it was just, it was just a horse. Yeah, that was just the thing. And, and it wasn't until I, um, much later, and I was, you know, working this as an actual novel, and I'm going, they can't just be horses. And um, Dark Racer, um, well, he's actually one of the oldest characters of the, the series when it, can't, it comes to when I developed him. And um, he just wouldn't shut up. <laughs> he actually he started talking. And I'm like, really? You're going to talk? And it's like, OK, so he can talk. I, I wasn't <laughs> planning on that, but OK. And then that's when I went, hmm, these are sentient beings. And it's like, OK, so why do they look like horses? There's a whole explanation behind that and stuff. So I, I kept him in as, as these sentient horse creatures and i kind of i wasn't sure how it would be received but surprisingly people love the candonians and dark racer is by far the um the the most favorited character of all of the series 
Mm. I, I was not planning on it. I did not expect that, but um, that's that's who most people say is their favorite character. I was like, okay, that works for me. <laughs> but it also helps. Um, the other reason why I left them in as horses was because thinking of it as a film, because that, that is the ultimate goal that I'm working toward to actually have it filmed. It actually allows us to be able to use real horses within it and um you know they can i mean um i wanted a, a character that could carry david through um the stories and literally carry him at times mm -hmm. and so um it's like okay so he he can ride you know a horse and um i mean if i had made some kind of really fantastic um, alien creature that's something that in a film you would have to design and build and you know do a lot of cgi work and so it's like it's actually cheaper to do it just with a horse <laughs> and so that's kind of how i it was like okay i'm just gonna leave them that way and but it worked and and um i'm happy it did and um i i have a a deep deep love for for the Candonians, they've they've really grown on me over time that's great that you get to keep something so foundational in the novel even after going through editors and everything yeah so, yeah congratulations on that mm, thank you all right we will now hear an excerpt from the first book in the nighthawk series by jolene R lorraine nighthawk the title book in the series david jonathan millard was not about to let a mere faxon get the better of him despite the fact the leathery brute weighed almost twice as much as he and sported an impressive arsenal of knuckle blades and an lb 87 rifle Keeping a firm hold on the rifle barrel, David twisted low to the right, using the weapon to hold back a direct strike of the blades. In a single smooth turn, he came up beside and slightly behind his enemy. The faxon hissed as David drove the heel of his boot into the tendon below the hawk, which was never as strong as the heavy-boned legs would suggest. The move easily dropped the larger creature to his knee. There was no time to waste. An injured faxon was a dangerous faxon. Pressing his weight against the rifle, to which he still clung tenaciously, David slammed his left elbow into the top of the creature's thick black muzzle, blocking the flailing blades with an armored wrist cuff. The blow to the muzzle did exactly as David had been taught, and the faxon was momentarily stunned. Using the precious seconds, David yanked the rifle barrel upward and twisted it out of the faxon's hands. The creature gave an indignant growl, lunging forward to receive the butt of the rifle across his nose. Flinging the rifle out of reach, David slapped a cuff around the faxon's wrist. It immediately locked. Enraged, the faxon lunged forward. David remained undaunted, having already thrown a second cuff around a thick, rounded beam. With a press of a button, an energy pulse locked the cuff's signal together, keeping the faxon from moving any more than a single step in any direction. David stood just out of reach. With a deep sigh, he examined his catch. Not bad for a night's work, but unfortunately the knight was still young, and this was not his main target. He allowed for a moment to catch his breath, preparing himself for yet another difficult task. Taking a couple steps back, he ran his hand through the sweaty strands of blonde hair that stubbornly fell back over his hazel eyes. He was a handsome man by most standards. At the age of 34, he was still quite young. His features were soft, yet well-defined. A boyish charm glinted in his eyes that lay beneath a strong brow, accented by smooth cheekbones and hard-set jaw. He stood a good six foot two in height, and from head to toe he was a wonderful example of fitness and strength. While not massive in muscular bulk, his body was toned by the rigors of his active lifestyle. After wiping his brow with his uniform sleeve, he glanced about, his keen eyes picking up the subtle variations within the shadowy alley. A headband aided in his scrutiny of his surroundings. 
special sensors sent a holographic shield across his eyes, adjusting to the subtle changes in light to provide both shading in bright environments and superb night vision. Assessing that all was now quiet around him, David turned to the thick military-style band on his wrist, watching the readout on the mission's current status. Taking a deep breath, he resumed his work, jogging hurriedly down a narrow street. Where's my team, Etrax? His voice instantly carried through the black military-issue comlink he wore as a band around his neck. East side, low road, watch for Crewstar. He doubled back. David allowed himself a slight half-smile. This was exactly what he wanted. That monogonite sob won't get far. Stay with the goods. Arzen, I'm with you. Almost immediately, Sergeant Kevin Arzen joined David on the street. He too was human, standing just a couple inches shorter than David. He was squarer in the face with short brown hair and muscular chest and arms. In his hand, he clutched his regulation handgun. They fanned out. Etrax has east. We've got Crewstar. As they neared the end of the alley, they pulled up short, barely avoiding a barrage of gunfire. Cover me. David gave his gun a quick check, while Kevin responded to the gunfire with a barrage of his own, allowing David to make it. Hold them there. David made his way to the other side of the street and around the far building before racing down the concrete walk. Various shipping crates and other debris lay in his path. It was an inevitable hindrance on the southeastern side of San Teres. This close to Livasi Bay, a giant lake despite its name, there were plenty of warehouses and shipping docks to hide among. And of course, not everything shipped was entirely legal, which was why David and his team from the Coalition of Law Enforcement were spending their night running about in the dangerous dark alleys of the city. Coming around the side of the building, David immediately caught sight of his adversaries, who were still focused on the other side of the alley, where Kevin's shooting demanded their attention. He could only afford one clean shot. Singling out the apparent leader of the small group, he fired a numbing energy bolt that quickly dropped the gruff man. Instantly, the other three split their defense between the two agents, and David was forced to retreat. For a moment, he held his ground against the wall, hoping for the crazed shooting to die down. However, the group was relentless, giving David no chance for a second clean shot. Carefully, he scanned the wall on the far side of the alley. The glint of metal drew his attention to where a broken monitor console hung limply halfway up the steel structure. Adjusting himself at the corner, David examined the angle of the metal and the positions of the shooters. It was almost perfect. Without looking at his weapon, David switched the ammunition from laser to bullet. Taking quick aim, he fired at the bit of metal. The bullet clanged against the surface, twisting the console slightly to the left. He fired again. The metal moved a fraction further. It was all he could afford, for the shooters noticed his random shots and were taking the opportunity to advance on his location. In an instant, David switched the gun back to its laser setting and fired. The beam bounced off the reflective surface to strike the nearest shooter in the arm. He fell back against his fellow fighter, giving Kevin a chance to advance during the distraction. Nice shot. I can't believe it worked. Check your back. David spun around, gun poised, to see a winged shadow streak by his head and disappear around a corner. David tracked the creature, but could not get a clean shot. Not this time, Crewstar. Arzen, hold position till backup arrives. Copy. Be careful. Shoving aside some loose pipes, David gave chase. Ahead of him flew a vehemently snarling monogonite. He was a medium-sized creature with a stout, rounded body covered in a short, bristly fur. A tight vest draped over most of his body was his only clothing, which allowed full mobility of his thick haunches, bony arms, and large, leathery wings. 
His face was round, with a short, wrinkled muzzle giving him a perpetual snarl. Black eyes were wide with rage. Giant, fan-like ears caught the subtle sounds of his pursuer. Baring his fangs, he spat out a curse as he flipped in the air to catch hold of a wall. With clawed hands and feet, he scaled the building and disappeared over the rim. David's eyes narrowed. Star was a slippery adversary. Luckily, David was up for the challenge. He knew the Monogonite's ways, and better yet, knew the city's layout as well as his own house. He spent many of his young adult years wandering the streets just to learn its patterns. It was knowledge he always knew would be an advantage to him as an officer. Running on ahead, he used a stack of crates to catch a narrow ledge and hoist himself to the roof. From there, the best way to the adjoining buildings was via the structural beams between them. Built when a proposal for more covered streets had been made, funding never fully found its way to the docks. Setting the beams was all the construction workers managed to complete. This was fine by David. All he wanted was the monogonite. As he neared the edge of the roof, he could see Crewstar doubling back down the alley underneath the beams. This was an unexpected benefit. Gauging the distance, David rushed out onto the beam and jumped, catching hold of the monogonite as he sailed underneath. A wailing scream erupted from Crewstar's throat as they fell. David was enveloped in a fury of beating wings and sharp claws, but he held on despite the battering he received. Tucking and rolling, he came up on his feet with one of Crewstar's arms and a wing held tightly in his grasp. He glared back into the fiery eyes of the creature, undaunted by the clearly visible rows of sharp teeth. A clawed hand struck out at his face, and David ducked, getting a beating with the free wing all the while. Angrily, he flipped Crewstar over to press his knee into the monogonite's shoulder. Enough! You are under arrest! David's announcement elicited another vicious yowl from the monogonite. Though smaller than David, he was strong and very flexible. Twisting in the officer's grasp, he lashed out with his fangs, forcing David back to avoid a bite to his face. Crewstar leaped into the air as the weight of David's knee relaxed. However, David refused to let go, and was lifted off the ground. Crewstar kicked and flapped madly, trying to free himself from David's grip. David hung on, pushing off from a wall to twist and catch a bar with his feet. Using himself as an anchor, David yanked Crewstar up short, and together they fell once more in a fighting, tangled mess. Striking the ground, the monogonite righted himself to try and take off once more. His claws dug at the rough pavement that received a constant shower of saliva with each vicious monogonite curse. David clung to the creature's shoulders, pressing himself against Crewstar's back, and ignoring the fury of the wings on either side. A couple seconds later, the wings dropped limply to the ground as Crewstar gave a resigned growl. Kevin held his gun poised in front of the monogonite's face. Right on time. As the two agents secured their prize, David retrieved a small cylindrical reader device from Crewstar's vest. Holding it up to Kevin, he gave a smile. I think we're through here. And that was an excerpt from the first book in the Nighthawk series by Jolene Lorraine. Thank you very much for joining us, Jolene. We really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about your first novel of a series that we are excited to continue to read. Well, I am so happy to be here and I'm so thankful that you've allowed me to come on and um, I hope you continue to enjoy the series and I hope other people um, pick it up and really enjoy it as well. And uh, once again, where can people find the series? so that they can enjoy it. Uh, yeah, you can find them on Amazon. Um, just uh, search Nighthawk um, Jolene Lorraine, or uh, you can go through the website, which is nighthawkseries.com. Okay, and where can everybody find uh, you if you want to um, mm -hmm. 
want them to find your other work or yeah. if you're working on any film stuff, where can people find all that good stuff? You can message me through the main website, nighthawkseries.com. Um, you can go to um, Facebook, that's Nighthawk Series, or you can also look um, through uh, the White Horse website, which is whitehorse dash et.com and you can also message me through there if you wanted to learn more about um both the film and the books fantastic thank you so much jolene yeah thank you for joining us for our interview with jolene lorraine the author of the nighthawk series the first novel in the series nighthawk make sure to check it out on the website she mentioned or on Facebook or any other social medias, you may find her books. As always, I have been one of your co-hosts, Travis Vermolum. I've been Clay Vermolum. And we are both still those people. Thanks for joining us on Sinister Super.